0: Welcome to Midtown 12 South. My name is Elliot. I'm the pastor here. And um, we like to say here that uh, we don't believe this morning that you have come to church. Uh, We don't believe primarily. That when the Bible speaks about church, it's talking about a building or a place. We believe that if you belong to Jesus, you are the church, and so we say here, thank you for bringing the church into this room, because uh, something mystical and magical happens when God's people gathers. He promises to be among us. He promises to change us. He promises to show us his beauty, uh, that we might be uh, in awe in worship, but also that we might be changed uh, and awaken our affections for him. So if you're curious about Jesus or you're not sure who Jesus is or what his church is about, we're glad you're here. We'd love to answer questions for you. Can't promise to answer all of them, but um, we would love to meet with you, myself or an elder or small group leader or somebody. We're just glad you're here. So uh, if you're joining us for the first time uh, this spring, um, we are in the middle or we're about three or four weeks into a spring sermon series on the book of Genesis We're actually preaching through just the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis dealing with these cosmic-sized realities that have been woven into the fabric of the universe since the dawn of time. And so uh, a little context for Genesis is that Moses, the prophet, Moses who would go on to lead God's people out of slavery in Egypt in the book of Exodus, the very next book, Moses writes the book of Genesis, this historical account divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit of the origin of all things. He writes Genesis to the group of former slaves in Israel who are exiting uh, Egypt on their way to the promised land. And this group of former slaves is saying, who are we? We've heard this news of this God passed down to us from our forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and Joseph, the patriarchs, but but who is this God and how did this all start and how do we get here? And where is this promised land you're taking us to and why should we trust this God who you tell us is rescuing us? And so Moses says, I'm here to tell you not only who you are, but I'm here to tell you who you are in light of who he is. And he gives them the book of Genesis to do that. The book of Genesis is the story that sets up the rest of the biblical story for the Israelites and for us as well. And so every mysterious page of the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis is trying to tell you, the reader, just like it was telling the original readers in the wilderness who the God of Israel is, and in so doing, who you are too. So we're we're one chapter in. We start chapter two today. uh, And here's what we've looked at so far. We looked at the God who made everything by the word of his power. And because he made everything, he knows everything, and he delighted to bring order and beauty into creation with what was formerly void and chaotic and nameless, he names it and he forms it and he makes his image bearers. This is what we looked at last week. He made his image bearers, us, man and woman, to co-create with him and take dominion in his brand new world. That was the original mandate. That was the original vision God had for this beautiful world that man and woman would work and labor and create and delight in the playground that he had made for us to enjoy. And it would be tempting to think at the end of chapter 1, which we wrapped up last week, that God ended his creation with man and woman, that man and woman were the final thing he created. And in a way, that's true, but there was one more thing left for God to create. And he does that at the very beginning of chapter 2. Most scholars think that you know these, these chapter and number titles were inserted by man much later on uh, in history, and they're not perfectly placed all the time necessarily. Most scholars think that what we're going to read today, which is the beginning of chapter 2, really is the completion of chapter one. This is the wrapping up of the creation account. So here we go, just three verses. Genesis chapter two, starting in verse one. It says, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. It's the word of the Lord, amen. Sabbath day, that's what we're gonna talk about today. I've prayed, I prayed this morning with the other pastors at Midtown, all of our Midtown campuses throughout the city. We gather to pray on Sundays. I prayed, Lord, don't let my hypocrisy on this subject Uh, hinder what you might want to (laughs) do among us today, that this is this this mysterious thing called the Sabbath. What do we do with it? What does rest look like? What does rest look like with five kids? If you got answers, tell me, because I have no idea. What does it mean to enter the Sabbath day, to enter the day of rest? Well, the keeping of the Sabbath tradition, historians would say, is one of, if not the, longest-running tradition in the history of the world, of any culture in the history of the world, Like, people have been practicing the Sabbath day longer than they've been practicing almost anything in history with regularity. And it's interesting to note that Sabbath is a part of the creation account, which is interesting to note because we maybe all would know that. Yeah, God created the Sabbath day, seventh day, creation, Sabbath. But it's interesting to note that that means that the Sabbath day is wired into the fabric of creation. It was not invented by the Jews later on as something to practice religiously. Now, they do, and we do, but it's actually wired into like who you are as a human being. It's wired into the cosmos. It's wired into the fabric of the world is this Sabbath rhythm, this Sabbath creation. So what does it mean? Well, the word Sabbath... Comes from the Hebrew word Shabbat, which is in our passage three times. It gets translated in English, in our English Bibles, rested. But Shabbat doesn't necessarily just mean to rest. There were other Hebrew words that Moses could have used to talk about the rest that we mean when we say it's nice to, to lie down for a while. It's nice to actually do something that brings you rest. Shabbat doesn't on its own necessarily just mean to rest, but you have to Shabbat in order to rest. To Shabbat literally means to cease, to stop, to cease from, to not, not to slow down, Not to roll through a stop sign, but to actually stop. To Shabbat means to cease from something. So God himself Shabbats on the seventh day. He ceases. He stops. And in that stopping, there is a divine rest that he enters into, God enters into, from all the work that he had done on days one through six. And when he Shabbats, when he Sabbaths, Sabbaths is we're told that he blesses the seventh day, which is interesting, that God would bless a day. It's very interesting. The Sabbath day is the only metaphysical thing in all of scripture, the only non-object thing that God blesses. He blesses something in time. He blesses something that is metaphysical, that is, that is kind of like like otherworldly. How do, how, do how do you bless something that doesn't have shape or form? How do, what does it mean that God blesses a day? And theologians would debate about this. Scholars would debate about this. At the very least, it means this, that for those who would enter this sacred day in a sacred way, those who would enter time of the seventh day with a sacred understanding, by entering it, we will be blessed by doing so. Abraham Heschel, who is a famous rabbi of the last generation, world-renowned Jewish scholar, his kind of pinnacle book is on the Sabbath. It is... It is dense, but it is very, very good. Read it several years ago when I was taking a deep dive on the Sabbath. He said, God creates the seventh day as a cathedral in time. So Jews would go to a temple as a cathedral in space. Like this is a, a, a physical object that they can go to, but he creates the Sabbath as a cathedral in time, as a way to enter the sacred, as a way to enter the holy, this metaphysical reality that one can enter into on the Sabbath. So God finishes his work on day six, and then in the most completed sense of the word, he takes it all in. He's not lacking. Creation is not lacking. Creation has been created. Man and woman have been created and commissioned. The work is done. It is finished, we're told, in here, and he rests in it. He ah, sighs in it. Not from exhaustion, but from enjoyment. Look at this. This is the rest of finished work. This is the enjoyment of a completed job. Yes, there was exertion. Yes, there was labor. Yes, there was work. Yes, there was toil. And you know this on a human level, that when you do something that you really enjoy, you may really enjoy your job or what hobby or what hiking or whatever. If you do something that you really enjoy, even if it takes work to do it, There is a satisfaction in the stopping of that work, in the completion of that work, not just because the work is done, but because you enjoyed what you just did. See, we tend to think about resting, Shabbating, Sabbathing as a way to rest so that I can rejuvenate. I have to go take some time off so that I can refill myself to then go work again. So I end up approaching Sundays, I end up approaching the Sabbath day or the weekends just from a perspective that I need to do something so that I can be more productive after I've done it. I need to take a day off so that I build my energy back up to go do what I really wanna do, which is to go work again on Monday. But the Sabbath, please understand, this is, this is like, this blew my mind this week, really studying this passage. The Sabbath was invented not just in a pre-fall world, but the Sabbath is instituted and enjoyed not merely, or not even initially, by human beings. God rests on the seventh day. In this garden state, in this state of bliss, in a perfectly completed world, God rested. Now we apply our humanistic view on what rest is and we say, man, I bet God was really tired and he needed a break. Like he worked really hard for six days. You think it was easy to create the world? He needed a break, he needed to take some time off. But that's not what's going on. An infinite God doesn't need to rejuvenate. An infinite God isn't tired. Psalm 121 says that God never sleeps. He doesn't get tired. God didn't need to recharge his batteries so that he could get back to work. We apply our our finite way of thinking about rest to all, I guess that what that's what God was doing on the seventh day, but God wasn't doing rest the way we think about rest on the seventh day. So what does it mean? At the very least, we have to begin to understand that Sabbath rest is not merely for the purpose of enhancing our efficiency of our work. I don't need to rest, and the, the way that the Sabbath would set up rest is not so that I can rest so that I'm more productive come Monday, so that I can, I just, I just need a break, so let me like, refill what I need to refill. Now, does Sabbathing rejuvenate you? Yes. Will Sabbath rest refuel you and re-energize you? Yes. But is it possible that Sabbath rest is about much more than that? Is it possible that Sabbath rest is about restoring you? Is it possible that the Sabbath is not merely to refuel you? Is it possible that because God rested on the seventh day and that is our model, is it possible that there is a different kind of rest that we don't understand there's actually something to enter into that is more divine and more sacred and even maybe more metaphysical than we've imagined. Jesus will go on to say in his earthly ministry this is what he says that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Like the Sabbath is not this thing to do really well so that you get the most out of it. It was actually a gift to you to invite you into something that we don't normally ever enter into. Think about this. Uh, chronological reality, too. This hit me this week as I was studying this. Okay, God makes the cosmos, days one through six, he makes man. He finishes day six. His last thing on day six was to create man and woman in his own image. Okay, so Adam and Eve are made, and in the Jewish uh, way of thinking about a day, this comes from the creation rhythm, too. We're told there was evening and there was morning on the first day. There was evening, there was morning. Evening comes first. Evening is the first part of a day for an Orthodox Jew. Okay? So on the sixth day, this is like at sunset on the sixth day, as the sixth day is about to end, God creates man and woman, which means on the seventh day, which starts at sunset, on the seventh day, the first thing God does is rest, which means the first thing Adam and Eve do as a created being is not work, they rest. The very first thing Adam and Eve experience as humans is the divine rest of perfect bliss with their maker. They enter into God's rest as their first act as humans. Almost as if God is saying, this is what you were made for. You were made for a reality where there is nothing to prove to him. You were made for a reality that was, that was full of sweet communion with him. And you were made for a reality where your soul is at rest. It's the first thing Adam and Eve do. Some scholars would say that because the Jewish day begins at night, Jewish day begins at dusk, and they didn't have like electricity, you know what they do at dusk? They go to bed. They eat dinner, then they go to bed. This, this, is, this is fascinating. Potentially the first thing Adam and Eve did after they ate a meal on their very first day was went to sleep. That's the first thing God wanted his humans to do was enjoy resting. That's what he intended. That's what he wanted. Hey, you're at such, there's such communion here. There is such bliss here. The world is perfectly ordered and perfectly complete. Would you rest with me? Would you enjoy this with me? So where in the world did that go? Why can't we do that? What happened to our ability to enter the Sabbath? Well, much like everything else we've looked at in creation over the last few weeks, sin has shattered the beauty of it. So what did the fall, what did sin do to our ability to enter Sabbath rest? Now, this should not or may not need any quantifiable data, although there is plenty but we should not need any quantifiable data to convince us that we are a restless people. It shouldn't take much to convince us that we don't rest well, we don't enter rest well, we don't Shabbat, we don't cease, we don't say no to things very well, we don't put stuff down and complete. we roll through stop signs of our life all the time. We very rarely stop and do nothing. But in case you're not sure, in case you don't know if you're restless or not, let's just look at a few indicators, not data and stats that would say we're the most overworked and busy culture in the history of the world, which is all out there. But let's look at like just some, let's look at some indicators that let us know, like check engine lights on your dashboard. Let's look at indicators that let us know whether or not we are restless or not. Okay. First one I hate, um, cause it's convicting, uh, Are you easily angered or are you easily irritable? Being easily angered is a symptom of impatience. I don't have the willingness to wait on you or to wait with you or to wait for you because there's not enough time in my day, and you are now, with your temper tantrum, little four-year-old, or with your lateness to my meeting, or with the way that you're holding me up right now, I don't have time to waste on you. I don't have time to suffer with you. You're kind of just an inconvenience because you're taking time away from me, and I need this time because I need my time to rest, and you're taking away my time, so you're taking away my rest. If you're making me wait, you are disrupting my comfort. And if you disrupt my comfort, you will get my quick wrath. But I'm merely quick tempered because I'm already existing from a place that is restless. I am I'm already existing from a place that, that treats rest with scarcity. I can never, uh, I'm not gonna get a long enough nap. I don't, you know, as if I get those. I'm not gonna, like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna get what I need. And so you're taking away my time and I don't have enough and I need more. And so you're taking something away from me that would, that I need to get rest. And so now when you take it away from me, I get angry with you. These moments are too valuable for me and you're taking them away from me and so you will get my easily angered self. Or how about this one? Maybe not even how you talk to other people. How do you talk to you? Are you easily angered, easily irritable with everyone else but are you also full of agitated self-talk? Like how do you talk to you about you and your world? This usually sounds like a lot of extreme language, always and nevers. Or at the very least, it's a lot of victim language. This is how we talk to ourselves. You're a victim of your busyness. You're always behind with no hope of attaining rest because of what everyone else has done. There's, You're full of despair when you talk to yourself. And this usually includes, because we're victims of our busyness, we're victims of our restlessness, our self-talk usually ends up being full of Now, subtly and quietly, because we would never say this to their face, but accusing language at everybody else. Our restlessness is always someone else's fault, not our own. That's how we talk to ourselves when we're restless. We blame. Or how about this? Easily angered, easily irritable, agitated self-talk. How about this? Do you sense, can you feel the crushing weight of the pressure to perform in your world? What you do is never good enough, it could have been better. You're never sure if you've done enough for what you need to be doing. You could always put more hours in, you could always spend more time on the project, you could always hone the craft a little bit more, you could always make a little bit more money, you could always answer more emails, you could always do more. Is there an anxiety around you in your arena of vocation or education? at school or at work are you i don't know is i just i feel like i'm i feel like i'm getting behind i feel like i feel like I feel like i have to do i have to i should have studied more i should have done more i should have worked more i should have stayed later or do you are you someone in your arena of work or school are you someone that needs constant affirmation for what you're doing because i don't ever know if i'm doing enough and so i need everyone in my world to tell me that i'm doing enough to make me feel like i'm doing enough but i'm not really sure so I'm sure you can't relate to any of those, but if you can, you might be restless. So what's causing this restlessness? What's going on underneath all of that that makes us unable to say no to things and unable to stop? We have so many failed attempts to find rest, and part of it is due to the fact that we don't actually know what we, we need rest from or what we need rest for so we like scurry around to try to find more rest, but we don't actually even know what we need rest, like the rest beneath the rest. What do we actually need rest for way down here? Why are we unable to put down everything and leave our hands and our calendars empty for even a day? What are we unable to cease from? What are we unable to Shabbat from? Two things, I'm sure there's more, two things. The first thing, I think these cover basically everything though, First thing we can't put down that's near impossible for us to Shabbat from and literally let our hands go from and set down completely is our own autonomy. We believe we are in charge of us. Therefore, we believe we have to hold our worlds together and we believe we have to hold our lives together. And if I don't keep my world afloat, no one will. So I can't set it down. I rule over me, and so I must keep ruling over me. And so we love living with or pretending we can live with no limits. That's what autonomous people love to do. I don't have any limits. I can do it all. In fact, I have to do it all because if I don't do it all, no one else will. And if I don't do it all, then the world will fall apart. So I'll say yes to too many things. I'll overcommit myself. I'll stretch myself too thin because I believe I have to keep all the plates spinning in order to be okay so I can never cease doing that. Because if I let a plate fall, the plate shatters. If all the plates shatter, my life shatters. So I can't say no to anything because I'm in charge of my world. A few weeks ago, I was confronted by a dear friend who thought that I was moving too fast. They were wrong. And I rebuked them for that. <laughs> well, and I said, look, man, I, I'm sorry if you like are getting kind of like a fast me. It's been known as drive by Elliot. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, but there's a lot of people making a request of me. And there's a lot of people putting demands on me. And that's, that was true. Here's the problem, though, with that mentality. When people are asking and expecting much of me, in some ways they are asking or expecting me to be infinite, to not have limits. And some of that is on them, but here's where it gets ugly. I let them think that way of me. And I kind of love being thought of that way. I kind of want you to think I can exist with no limits. Don't you think I'm wonderful? So I will overcommit myself because yes, you are expecting much of me, but I kind of love that you think I could do all this. I set myself up for it. And so buried beneath our attempts to be autonomous and infinite is the belief that I have to be this way because I need you to think of me a certain way, but I also if I don't do this, if I don't act infinite, if I don't try to be infinite, then no one will fend for me. No one will provide for me. I have to hold me and my universe together and there is no taking a day off from that. I can't cease my doing if my doings is what is keeping my world together. Cannot Shabbat from autonomy. <laughs> Second thing we can't Shabbat from is a little more, it lives a little bit more in the shadows. Because if I looked at your calendar, I could probably tell you, yeah, you believe you have to be autonomous. You believe you have to be infinite. Th- this one lives a little bit more in the shadows and actually it grows in the vague. Uh, like it loves to live and like mold, like grow in the dark. One of the things, the other thing we can't put down, the other thing we can't Shabbat from is our guilt and our shame. Because somewhere deep inside you is the belief that if you spent your time in the right, in the best, in the most efficient way, and you took all of that performance and you took all of that productivity and you took all of that achieving and all of that doing, if you could stand in front of the courtroom of your own heart, you would finally feel like it was enough to justify you. It was enough to validate your existence. It was enough to actually make you feel like you're enough, and it would relieve, finally, your conscience that is full of guilt and shame. Because you know what you've done. You know who you've abandoned. You know who you've taken advantage of. You know what you have fantasized about. You know you, ha- you know what your hands have done. You know what darkness lies inside of you that you can't tell anybody. And that reality deep inside of all of us is driving our guilty consciences. I can't put it down. I can't let it go. Partially because, the Bible would speak to this, shame hunts us down. It chases us down to remind us and accuse us of what we've done. But partially why we can't put it down, why we can't put our guilt and our shame down, is because it's such a mountain of a reality in my own heart, in my own conscience. I don't know where to put it. Where is it going to go? I can't just set it down. I can't just leave it. I don't know know where it would go. (laughs) So I can't leave it. We need our time. We want our time to justify us. We want our use of our days to validate us. We want our use of our time to make us feel like we're worth something. And so we come to a Sabbath day and we think, I'm supposed to do nothing today. What if I get to the end of a day and I did nothing? I will feel even worse about myself. I need my days to make me feel like I've done something. I need my days to make me feel like I am something. I gotta do more, I gotta be more, I gotta be better. And maybe that will relieve my shame. Maybe that will cleanse my guilty conscience. Isn't this interesting? Isn't this so interesting? We long for infinite metaphysical rest for the eternity that is in here. We want rest from our having to hold our world all together. We want rest from our shame and our guilty consciences. And I want to achieve this infinite rest in time, which means I am looking to satisfy and find an infinite rest with something that I have a very finite amount of. I want infinite rest by producing, achieving, and doing with something that is very finite. Isn't that ironic? Let me ask it this way. If you, if you can relate to any of this, there's always something to do, there's always something to uphold, there's always something to relieve my conscience of, and you think there's enough of things, there, there, there are things that you need to be producing and achieving and performing in in order to achieve those things, how much would be enough? Like, how much efficiency, how much bliss, how much productivity, how much obedience, how much performance would be enough? How much do you have to do to finally feel like you've achieved global security in your world? (laughs) How much do you need to perform in order to finally feel like you've done enough to outweigh all of the heinous other things you've done? How much is enough? When will it be enough? When will you be able to be validated enough? When will you be secure enough? How much doing would you have to do? And the answer is an infinite amount with something that you have a finite amount of time with. So we will never find rest in that paradigm. And when we approach rest this way, the weekend or Sabbathing, all, all that is then lay, laid before us, the thing that is like drawing us into those things is merely a way to recharge my batteries so that come Monday I can get back to work relieving my conscience and holding my world together. That's how we view vacations Man, I just, need, I just gotta get out. I, just gotta, I, I, need, I need a break from all the laboring so that, man, when I get back from my break, I'll be even more efficient with my time. I'll be even more productive with my time. So I only enter the invitation of Sabbath rest as a selfish way to maxi- maximize my efficiency on what I'm really working for. I need Sunday So I can just get a breather. Like, just give me, give me 30. Give me 30. Like, I just I just need a little break so that then I can get back to working for what I really think will give me rest. That same rabbi Abraham Heschel said that when we approach time this way, he said it is like a slick, treacherous monster with a jaw-like furnace incinerating every moment of our lives. It's a little dark. But it's real. Time, this finite use of time incinerates every moment of our life. That is what the fall has done to our ability to enter Sabbath rest. There is a relentless assault on our rest. Far cry from the seventh day of creation. So what do we do? Another Jewish author, modern uh, Writer Judith Shulevitz wrote an article in the New York Times Magazine a few years ago uh, called Bring Back the Sabbath. She's approaching it um, for like secular society, like the benefits of what Jews have been practicing for millennia. She says, most people mistakenly believe that all you have to do to stop working is not work. The inventors of the Sabbath, she says, understood that it was a much more complicated undertaking. You cannot downshift casually and easily the way you might slip into bed at the end of a long day. No, she says, it will take a strenuous act of the will to enter the Sabbath. Here's the irony. Entering into the Sabbath is hard work, but not in the way that you think. Because entering into the Sabbath means setting down things you've never set down. That's hard work. Entering into the Sabbath, something is going to have to die to enter the Sabbath. Namely, our egos. But we have to choose to put something down in order to pick something up. So what is the Christian invited to pick up in order to enter Sabbath rest again? Well, if you were an ancient Israelite, not living in the garden. Uh, Israelites didn't live in the garden. Thanks, Adam and Eve. But if you were living in the promised land, here's how you would have been commanded to enter into Sabbath rest with like religious ritual. Yes, you were to enter Sabbath rest every seventh day, but you were also commanded with a ritual uh, undertaking to enter what was known as the sabbatical year every seven years. In the sabbatical year, uh, the, the farmers in, in an agrarian society, they all took a break. And the Lord promised in year six, he would double their harvests to give them enough for year seven when they would literally give their land a break. They would not farm on the seventh year. They were, they were commanded, give your land and your bodies rest for a year. Now their year was seven months, but it was still give, give this land and give your bodies a break during the sabbatical year and enjoy, try to remember like the seventh day of creation for a whole year. And then, in the seventh time seventh year, was something known as the year of Jubilee. This was the seventh seven. This is the most perfect and complete year for an Israelite, the year of Jubilee. It was like Sabbath on steroids. It was the rest of finished work for an entire year for the nation and it took the sabbatical year and added to it it was not only a year where there was a break and a rest for the people on the land but all debts in society were canceled all indentured servants were set free and any land that had been rightfully traded hands because of debt or because of business purchases or whatever any land was returned to its original family in this in the jubilee year and like economist and Farmers, and people have written much about this, like what this would do to a culture to have a year of Jubilee every seventh, seventh year. Like what it would do for the economy, what it would do for the land, what it would do for like the people and how it would actually like, it alleviates poverty. It, like it's, it's unbelievable the benefits that God had in mind not only to take a sabbatical year, but to take a year of Jubilee as well. The year of Jubilee was to be the full experience of the blissful rest that God intended at creation on the seventh day. It's the year of Jubilee. Guess how many times in Israel's history, as a nation, they practiced the sabbatical year in the year of Jubilee? Zero. Not one. They didn't do it one time. And then the book of Isaiah rolls around, and part of Israel's punishment of even being sent into exile... God says to them, I'm sending you in exile for all of your idolatry. He actually says, one of the reasons why I'm sending you into exile is because you never practiced the sabbatical year. You never did it. You, like, I'm, I'm gonna give, I will give the land a break. I will do it. You'll be out of here. I'm gonna send you away. And then the book of Isaiah comes and the, and the prophet Isaiah is prophesying about the kingdom that's coming. And he says, one day a Messiah will come. And in this Messiah's coming, he will bring a kingdom that will be a whole lot like the year of Jubilee. Debts will be canceled. Restoration will happen. Slaves will be set free. That will be the, the indicator that the kingdom has come. That will be the indicator that Messiah is here as he's gonna bring the year of Jubilee for his people. And Jesus begins his public ministry and in Luke chapter four, he goes to the synagogue in Galilee and he, his first scriptural reading that he reads In his public ministry, as he goes to that page of Isaiah that talks about when the kingdom comes, when the Messiah is here, it will be like the year of Jubilee. He reads that passage, and then he sits down and he says, today, that scripture has been fulfilled by me. Here's what Jesus is saying. In him is the ultimate year of Jubilee and all the realities of Sabbath rest that we long for. Jesus came, this was in our, in our confession just a few moments ago, Jesus came to give you rest. And not just mind and body rest. Jesus came to give you the rest that you were made for in the garden. The kind of rest that can cease from things. The kind of rest that can put things down. The kind of rest that can say no. The kind of rest you were made for not to be rejuvenated but to be restored. And all the work needed to sustain you, all the work needed to justify you, all the work needed to validate you has been done and completed for you by Jesus. Jesus holds your world together and Jesus holds your world together. He keeps the world spinning and he quiets your conscience. And so now, now Christian, Every seventh day, every Sabbath day, members of God's kingdom are called to gather to renounce our autonomy and to recognize God's dominion over our time and over our hearts. Everything in your world would demand for you to be infinite and the Sabbath day is a day to remember that you are not. You don't have to lift infinite things, Jesus, infinite things, Jesus already has. This is literally, Hebrews chapter four talks about the ultimate Sabbath rest for the Christian, which we get to experience now in part, but one day when kingdom comes, we'll experience in full. And here's what it says. This is literally what it means to be a Christian. You stop working and you rest in the work that God has done for you in Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. And you will experience Sabbath rest. So about 300 years before Jesus, a group of uh, Jewish scholars, 70 of them, in fact, the Jews were spread all over uh, the the Greek and Roman Empire, what would become the Roman Empire, and they decided, Greek was the, the language in writing, so these Jewish scholars from all over what's known as the diaspora of like Jews scattered everywhere, these 70 Jewish scholars translated the Old Testament and the Torah into Greek. It was written in Hebrew. It translated the Old Testament into Greek so that Jews who now were raised in a Greek-speaking culture, Greek reading culture, could understand it. It's known as the Septuagint. It's Seventy is what it means, because there were 70 Jewish scholars who did it. So it's the Greek version of the Old Testament. And when they came to Genesis 2, they needed a word to describe what is used in verse 2 of our passage, where it says this. You can throw this up there, Allie. It says this. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. They needed a word. They needed a Greek word. What Greek word could we use to describe the satisfaction of completed work? What would capture the heart of God in the Greek language, the heart of God that he just completed a mighty work that he could rest in because the work was finished and the work was complete? They picked this Greek word, teleo, which means to complete something to finish something, to fully accomplish something. Taleo, God teleo, in the seventh day. And if you fast forward a few thousand years from this moment in Genesis 2, of God completing his work, of God teleoing his work, and then resting in it, you would then get to a garbage heap outside the walls of Jerusalem. And you would hear a suffocating Messiah use the same word when the work that he had come to complete was finished as well. It is to It is finished. Jesus cried. It is done. The work, the blood, the undoing of death and sin, and the relentless assault of what it does on our consciences to make us restless. Jesus says, It is to Leo. It is finished. This is how complete Jesus' work is. The book of Hebrews talks about the sacrifice of Jesus. And it says his sacrifice was so complete that he doesn't have to keep sacrificing like they did in the Old Testament. He had a once and for all sacrifice to atone for your sins, past, present, and future. And he's a great high priest who is now seated at the right hand of God the Father. And and the book of Hebrews says high priest can't sit because there's always work to do. So if Jesus is seated and he's the high priest, what he's saying by being seated is saying, the work is done. There is no more sacrifice. There is no more blood. There is no more atoning needed by you. Jesus has done it. And when God rested from his work in the garden, he knew there would come a day when there would be more work to do in order to bring his people back into the Sabbath rest that he intended. And Jesus has come and finished that work. And if you want to enter that rest if you want your hearts to experience that rest, you have to set down your autonomy and you have to set down your guilt and shame and believe that Jesus has taken care of both. You can be at rest, like, like today, like, like right now in this moment. You can, your soul can actually experience rest because Jesus is at rest. He's not anxious. He's not scurrying. He's not wondering, When's it gonna, when are they gonna, I, they have to, You can enter rest because Jesus is at rest. And if you don't feel at rest, go sit on his lap for a while and he will let you know how at rest he is. And you can enter his rest. You can't pick up what Jesus has done unless you learn to cease, unless you learn to Shabbat. And so let each Sabbath remind us of the rest that was ours in the garden, the rest that was lost in the fall, and the rest that was won for us again by Jesus at Calvary. And that one day will be ours forevermore let's pray Jesus we are restless 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 and we don't know where to go Um, we just feel like there's more to do there's worlds to hold together and there's calendars to fill up and there's emails to answer and there's relationships to sustain and there's there's too much to do and our consciences drive us and it is a harsh taskmaster And so, Jesus, by the power of your blood, would you come and give us Sabbath rest right now? Would you all literally, would you help us all to literally sigh and stand in awe of the completed work, not only that you did on the seventh day, but you did when you came and dwelt among us and hung naked on our behalf? We need you, Jesus. We need much rest May we find rest knowing that you have bought it and you are in it. And we can rest well there. We ask all this in your name. Amen.